So we talked about uh, the first couple verses in Revelation 2, 12, and 13 last week about the church in Pergamum. So this week, uh, it's going to be a little bit different study. Um, I, I found that when there was only four or five verses and you have to take two weeks, like Pastor said, you got to do some digging to come up with that much information. But it's, it's been fun. And um, before we get into the lesson tonight, uh, I'm not sure who's going to be teaching next week, just for your information. Uh, it's going to depend on how Brian is feeling. Um, he, he did share with me, he said, when I take my pain pills, he said, I'm like a zombie. <laughs> so we'll see how this next week comes, okay? So questions, what does repentance have to do with following Christ? What does repentance have to do with following Christ? Pam? You all agree with that? Yeah. She said, if you don't repent, you're really not following Christ, which is very true. Um, it's, it's a matter of uh, living the way you want to live and doing what you want to do. And, and um, oh, well, so what? And we're going to see some of that in tonight's lesson as we get into it about repentance. Yes, Pastor Jim? Did you hear that? You need repentance before you can follow Christ. Very true. Absolutely. You remember last week's lesson, what did, for what did Jesus praise the people of the church at Pergamum? What, what, was, what did he tell them? We were on a kind of a high note last week and Jesus was praising them. Now tonight we're going to find out, whoo, just a minute here. There's a few things that's not right. But what did he praise them for? Having faith and caring. Yep, having faith is right. And being faithful witnesses. Okay, faithful witnesses. Okay. Basically, they were pretty solid in their walk with the Lord, weren't they? So how does sin in others affect us? Or does it? Does sin in others affect us? Yeah, okay. How does sin in others affect us? I found with this question, sometimes... When, you're, when we see sin in others or we even are, are part of others doing things, it, it can suck you right in. And this is another thing that we're going to be kind of covering on tonight is what happened to this church in Pergamum? Jesus said, you know, they were doing so good 
They were holding on to their faith, and then all at once, wow, it was just like a turnaround. So in tonight's lesson, the church at Pergamum is called to repent by Jesus. To what extent do you think repentance should be an ongoing part of a believer's life? Is it a continuous thing or just a one-time thing? Okay. That's, yes. Okay. Especially when I'm driving. Okay. My, my, my thought on that is to what extent It should be something that we're aware of continually. We do something wrong. Your conscience should be your guide on that. That's, that's me speaking there, okay? Because if you don't repent, it's not going to really affect you at all. You're just going to keep doing whatever and keep going in that direction. So... How do we protect ourselves? This is the last question. How do we protect ourselves and protect our church from compromise? How do we protect ourselves and our church from compromise? What should we do if we see compromise present in the life of someone in the church? Yeah. It can be. You may talk to other people and you'll think that maybe, okay, well, we're not so bad after all. Everybody else is doing it. This is common now. This is an ongoing thing. But in the body of Christ, that doesn't mean it's okay. That's right. It goes against the word. Exactly. That's right. Anybody else have any idea on that? Yes, Rebecca. Becky?
exactly. I, I think also um, we got to be so careful how we approach people. And, and like, Meg, you got to do it out of love. It has to, you have to love, you know, you show your love to the person. And we do that, and we need to do that. But folks, you, you have to do it out of love and not get nasty with them, can I say? It's, it's, uh, or, you know, just point a finger at them and say, you can't do this. Doris, did you have a... Definitely, definitely. So, okay, are we ready to record in the sound booth? Okay, okay, tonight, Revelation chapter 2, and I'm going to go back and read from starting with verse 12 and uh, bring back a little bit because this will tie in with the background that we're going to be looking at. So verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Verse 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Verse 17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. So last week, we looked at, like I said, verses 12 and 13. And uh, Pergamum was a large, if you remember, it was a large city. It was a wealthy city. And it was the capital of Asia Minor. It was about 40, 45 miles northeast of Smyrna. And uh, it boasted of having the largest library in the Roman world outside of Alexandria's, which was in Egypt. It had over 200,000 scrolls in the library. Animal skins, if we remember, they used to write on parchment that would get old and it would disintegrate. And so they developed where they used animal skins and processed those uh, to write on, which then lasted for a long, long time. So they were known for that. Pergamum was the home of a lot of pagan worship, having several temples. Idolatry was very heavy there. It had a temple to Augustus Caesar, and the city was loyal to Rome. Pergamum was known for its worship and defense of the Greek pantheon. There was a huge temple to Zeus on the Acropolis, and if you remember, 
it was up on a hill about a thousand foot up and it had a flat surface and on top of that hill then on that flat surface there was this huge temple and it overlooked the whole city and it was shaped like a throne okay remember Jesus said to them that Satan's throne was there they did not go through persecution like the church at Smyrna and the courage of their faith was evident they stood boldly for Christ. Anipas, a believer, gave up his life for his faith. He paid the supreme price for not compromising. So Pergamum, for the most part, was faithful. But we now come to verse 14, and Jesus is telling them, but I have a few things against you. Because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam. And then verse 15, it says, you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. What is he saying to them? This is what I have against you. You have these people there who believe in false things and you are allowing it. You are not dealing with it. You are allowing them to feel comfortable. He says, I have a few things against you, namely two things. The one, because you have there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. And number two, I am blaming you. You are holding to the teaches, teachings of the Nicolaitans. It is your responsibility. You are not putting them out of the church. And that's a pretty strong word. He says, you are not putting them, you're not doing anything about it. You're just allowing it. So you're not dealing with it. It wasn't a question of their denying the Lord's name. They would not do that. But it was not a question of denying their faith. It was a question of being soft and tolerant to these teachings. There are some in your church who have wed the world and you are allowing them to feel comfortable. Thus, Jesus brings a word of condemnation to the church. So we're on the third part tonight, condemnation to Pergamum, the church there. It's verse 14, it says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have those that are listening to the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. What is the teaching of Balaam? Of the teaching of the Nicolaitans. In the Hebrew and the Greek, the words mean the same. So we really don't know if this was two different groups. Some commentaries related as two separate groups teaching about the same thing, and other commentaries say, they're the same and one, and one only. Only one was named the Nicolaitans. And we, we really don't know for sure. Balaam means to conquer people. And the Nicolaitans from the Greek means to conquer people. So they meant their meaning was the same. Balaam. So the next few minutes, we're going to be looking at what is written in Scripture about this man named Balaam which is found in Numbers, you start with Numbers 22 through 25, chapters 22 through 25. 
we can ask, who is this man called Balaam? We are first introduced to him in Numbers 22. Israel, God's people, had traveled from Egypt and were now camped in the plains of Moab, which was opposite of Jericho. The king of Moab was a man called Balak. And he had been keeping track of Israel's movement and had learned what they had done to the Amorites. And Barak Barak and and his people, they were terrified of Israel and they wanted them to be gone and they wanted them cursed. Well, Balaam was known for his prophetic gifting and he was called upon by Balak to curse Israel. Balak wanted to have Balaam curse Israel so then that they would become weak. Then Balak would attack them and he would drive them out. He had it all planned. He knew that because of Israel's size, he had no way of defeating them unless they were first cursed. So he dispatched his elders to visit Balaam with a proposal. If Balaam would curse Israel, he would be rewarded financially. When Balaam heard the offer, he sought the mind of God. Oh, everything seems to be going pretty good so far. In no uncertain terms, he was told not to go with Balak's elders and not to curse Israel because God had placed his blessing up on them. Well, when Balak was informed of Balaam's answer, he sent a second delegation. He was pretty determined to have Israel cursed. And not only that, but he gave Balaam a better offer. It was more than the first time. They pleaded with Balaam to accept the offer and begged him not to delay. Numbers 22 Verse 17 says, because I will reward you handsomely and do whatever you say. Come, put a curse on these people for me. Well, once again, he was told that he would be honored richly for his ministry. It is apparent from this passage that Balak's men had found Balaam to love money. And what does scripture say? The love of money is the root of evil. So he was going around this Balak, or uh, Balak was now saying, hey, we're just going to pay him off financially, and he'll, that'll look interesting. That'll really pull him in and, and get Israel cursed. So at first, Balaam put on a brave front, saying no amount of money would allow him to go contrary to God's command. But he detained the men for the night, saying he needed to pray about the situation. You see how Satan can enter into the mind of a person and just real slowly change that mind? In the end, God gave him permission to go, but only because of Balaam's insistence, and it is clear that God was angry with him for going. You see, friends, God's going to allow 
you to do things that's against his will. And we have to be so careful in that area. Balaam was giving in to what Balak wanted. So this is what I believe Peter was referring to when he referred to the way of Balaam. Balaam typifies all of us who like to deal and wheedle and pressure God. All the while rationalizing what it is we want to do to give in to compromise. We go our way as opposed to God's way. And how often God permits us to have our own way, but the end is the way of death. Proverbs 14, verse 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. Many of us recall the story as Balaam rides on his donkey to deliver his message to Balak. And the angel of the Lord stands before him, blocking his path. Remember that? Eventually, Balaam's eyes are opened, and he sees the angel before him. God speaks to him and says, Why have you beaten your donkey these three times? I have come here to oppose you, because your path is a reckless one before me. When our way is contrary to God's word, revealed will, we too are heading in the way of Balaam. The way of Balaam gives place to the error of Balaam. Jude 1, verse 11 says, Woe to them, they have taken the way of Cain, they have rushed for profit into Balaam's error, they have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. The word error, E-R-R-O-R, error, used here is the Greek word for deception, delusion, fraudulence, and to wonder. Balaam's insistence on having his own way opened him to deception and error. We are no different in that every one of us is acceptable to wandering from the truth. Balaam had allowed himself to follow a false line of reasoning. He did so because he wanted the huge purse of money that they were offering him. And so from one statement the Lord made to him, approval to go with the Moabites, he followed false reasoning until he had deceived himself into thinking that perhaps God would not mind so much after all if he cursed the people of Israel. Balaam is giving several chances to repent. In Numbers 23 and 24, Balak, on three separate occasions, takes Balaam to curse Israel, but each time God speaks words of blessing upon them, refusing Balaam permission to curse them. Balak is furious. And then it says in Numbers chapter 24, 10 and 11, then Balak's anger burned against Balaam. He struck his hands together and said to him, I summon you to curse my enemies, but you have blessed them these three times. Now leave at once and go home. I said I would reward you handsomely 
but the Lord has kept you from being rewarded. Balaam returns to his home, but not before he makes a final grave mistake. His love for money is quite apparent that it controls him. He simply must have it. Because God has repeatedly blessed Israel, Balaam's mind goes into overdrive. He is thinking, and he devises a teaching that spread through Israel, causing the whole nation to sin greatly so that God himself will curse them. Three times Balaam tried to curse Israel. Every time he tried to do it, he failed. So he got another plan. If he could not curse them, he would earn his money another way. He would corrupt them. Isn't that like Satan? So what did he do? He devised a plot. He went like this. The Moabite women will move in among the Israelite men, and the Moabite women will sexually seduce the Israelite men, sucking them into intermarriage. And once they were intermarried, it will pull them into all the idolatry of Moab. The life of Moab could be reduced to a simple statement. It could be described as fornication and idolatrous feasts. It could be described as debauchery and prostitution. And so Balaam tried to work his plot and have the women of Moab seduce the men of Israel into intermarriage, and then he could bring Israel into a blasphemous union with Satan and idols and fornication, and that then would debase Israel. That would destroy their power. And you know what? It worked. The doctrine of Balaam is the teaching that the people of God can intermarry with a heathen and thus will become what the heathen are. There were some people in the Pergamum church saying, it is okay to intermarry. It's okay to intermingle with the pagan system. We are not to be separate. We are not to be aliens. We are to intermarry with unbelievers. We are to get involved in life around us. Mixing the old patterns, the old morals, or the lack of the old adultery with a new Christianity. In other words, it was okay to do both. They could live a sinful life, but it was also, it was all right because we were Christians. Friends, we have the same thing happening today. We make excuses just like the, the people in that, some of the people in that Pergamum church, it's okay. It's not going to hurt because we, st- we still believe in God. It's all right. God absolutely condemned such a union in Israel, and here the Lord condemns such a union in Pergamum church. We are reminded in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what we do, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? But here there were some people in this church saying, 
I'm a Christian. And I worship, I can worship idols, it's okay. It's all right. You can be a Christian and commit fornication. That was their thinking. Because remember, recall, there was many, many, many temples in Pergamum. And it was idol worship, fornication was a big thing going on. So there was Christians in the church doing this very thing. These Christians, it's okay, we can go to the orgies, there's nothing wrong with that. Go to the festivals, go to the feasts, and still come here and pay your homage to Jesus. Doesn't work that way, friends. And the saints in the church were doing nothing about it. James 4 says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. Friends, there can be no compromise. So in this church at Pergamum, nothing was being done about those involved in this type of living. People were eating things sacrificed to idols. They were, they were committing acts of immorality. In Acts 15, the council of Jerusalem sent out a message to the churches and said, don't eat things offered to idols. It sucks you back into idolatry. It conjures up all the old life patterns. And the council also said to stay away from all immorality. But here, there were some in this church who even were taking part in public orgies that went on into pagan life. When God sees this blatant display of idolatry and immorality, he releases judgment. And the Bible talks about some 23,000 men died in a plague. What is the teaching of Balaam? It revolved around the idea that because they were blessed covenant people of God, they could not be cursed. Well, since you are a Christian, you can live like you want to live. And you won't lose out with God. It appears that in order to mislead Israel, Balaam informs them that God will not allow him to curse them. The reason, he said, is because God has blessed them. Therefore, because of his covenant of blessing, they had no need to fear any judgment with regards to their conduct. Wow. The false security this gives the Israelites then becomes the basis for their accepting the Moabites' offer to join with them in their sexual perversion and idolatry. Paul, in writing to the Corinthian believers, cites this specific episode in Israel's history as being one of the reasons that they failed to enter the promised land. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 10. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud 
and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, it says here, the 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Then he adds in verses 11 and 12, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us to whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think we are standing on firm ground, be careful that we don't fall. Then there is another thing that Jesus has against them. You also have some who in the same way hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. The phrase in the same way is important because the teaching of the Nicolaitans led to the same behavior. The Nicolaitans were comparable to those who were following Balaamism. It was basically the same. Apparently, this teaching had advocated a mingled lifestyle. In verse 16, the Lord called this church to repentance with a sharp warning of judgment with a sword out of his mouth, suggesting that the judgment is based on the truth of his word. Remember, the sword, we talked about that last week, double-edged sword, is what? The word of God, okay? The double-edged sword symbolically represents the twofold ability of the word of God to separate believers from the world while at the same time to condemn the world for its sin. Worldly thinking must be dealt with positively and quickly or it eats into our lives individually and corporately. Worldliness eats deeply into our viewpoint of life and what we expect from it. It then, it then impacts our values and then our priorities and then our pursuits. In Numbers 22, it says, The Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And you know what Balaam did? He bowed all the way to the ground. The Lord pulled a sword on Balaam, and the Lord will come with a sword against a compromising church, one like the church that was in Pergamum. They were a compromising church. You have to judge error. You have to keep the church pure. 
Then finally, the counsel in verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Which is a, a long way of saying, listen, listen. Don't miss this. You've got to hear this message. And it is the Holy Spirit inspiring it as John writes it, as Christ gives it. And then this counsel is wonderful. To him who overcomes, to him who overcomes, we hear that phrase after every study of the church, of the seven churches, to him who overcomes. Who is an overcomer? Who is that? Every time you see it in the book of Revelation, who is it? It's the believer. It's the believer. 1 John 5, 4 and 5 says, who is the overcomer? The one who believes. And what is it that he overcomes? Our faith, our belief. The true believers, I will give some of the hidden manna. What in the world is he talking about? We've heard about manna, haven't we? What is the hidden manna? We all know that the manna was supplied when they were going through the, the, the trip and, and they, what's that stuff? What is that? When they looked down and seen all this laying on the ground. What is that? It was the food that God supplied to the children of Israel when they were in the wilderness. It is striking how they got the name manna. When the food fell on the ground, the children of Israel came. They looked at it in the, in the morning and they said, what is it? And in the Hebrew, it means manna. Okay? Very simple. Literally, it means manna. When they said, what is this? Once Israel entered the promised land, what happened? The manna ceased. And they lived off of the fruit of the land. But they kept a little pot of manna. The Jews did by command of God. And they put it in a little gold pot and it was kept in the holy place, in the tabernacle, and later the temple. When Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians in 586 B.C., that pot of manna disappeared. And I found this interesting. The tradition had it that the prophet Jeremiah, who was living at that time, took the pot of manna and hid it, and only the Messiah knew where it was. And when the Messiah comes, he would give his people the hidden manna. Just a little side note, and several commentaries had made, had made note of that. I thought, huh, I never heard that before. So probably this is what the Lord had reference to saying, I am the Messiah, and I have said to you, I am the bread of life. Jesus says, I am the bread of life in John 6, verse 51. And then he says, and I will give him a white stone. What in the world is the white stone referring to? Well, 
we really don't know for sure. There are many thoughts on what it is, and this is perhaps the most difficult to interpret of all the rewards mentioned in chapter 2 and 3 because of the various uses of white stones and because no other passage tells us anything about the white stone. Judges, way back then, judges used to use stones to determine a verdict, and they would place a white and a black stone in, a urn, in an urn. And if a white stone came out, it meant acquittal of all the charges. Or it could mean a precious stone like a diamond uh, that corresponds to the urn and the theumen worn by the high priest. Remember they had the stones crossed here? It could refer to that and would speak of special priestly prerogatives and access into the very presence of God. Also, in John's day, there were special stones given which entitled the bearer special hospitality and friendship. As you can see, there were many customs and several possibilities for the meaning of the stone. Whatever it clearly symbolized special blessing and privilege that will be given to those believers who overcome the influx of the world in their lives. A name which no one knows. Here, the Lord promises us a special name. It says that there's going to be a name written on that white stone. Why? It could show intimacy in God's personal love and concern for each one of us, a special reward for believers who overcome. It is just between God and you. Wow. This name describes our special relationship and our character. When the Lord looks at us and gives us this new name, which no one else knows but you and God, that's it. You can be sure. It is going to be a good name. The one who knows the person who receives it. So friends, we're all going to get a white stone with a special name written on it. This is how personable it is. I'm not going to know yours and you're not going to know mine. It's between you and God. So in closing of all this, we do not want to be a compromising church. We have to deal with issues. Must the Lord come against us and smite us with the Lord out of his mouth, the word of God? We what we know to be true. We want to deal with error in our fellowship. And that can be real touchy sometimes of how to do that. We need to do that in love. We want to be a true church. We want to be the true believers. The overcomers. You and I are going to have a white stone with a name written on it. It's going to be special. There may be a special message 
privately from the living Christ to those he loves. I can't wait to find out what that special name is going to be that's mine. And I hope you too have that same thing going through your mind. God, my white stone, what name is going to be on it? Because friends, when we get there, we're going to get that white stone with a special name written on it. So it is going to be one of those additional little gifts from heaven that the Lord puts his own imprint upon our personality forever and ever and ever. I don't know about you, but I'm excited for that day. And I'm reminded of the song of what a day that will be when Jesus we will see. And I hope you're all feeling the same way. What a day that will be. And if I was a good singer, I'd start singing it. So this is the end of chapter, uh, on the chapter on uh, two on Pergamon. Next week, we go to the fourth church, which is Thyatira. And I'm not sure if pastor is going to be here or if I'm going to be here. But we'd like you all to come back. And uh, God bless. Thank you for coming.